Right, well, good morning again. <clears throat> I hope that your week went well. I'm glad to see you here this morning that you could join us, even though it's a little bit colder out. We're almost through those January blues, but as the week gets a little bit colder, it reminds us that we're still in winter, unfortunately. We long for those warmer days a little bit. You know what? January is one of those months where it's after the holidays and you can kind of get depressed a little bit. You can get a little anxious and you can crave those days and the colder temperatures don't seem to help too much. But this morning as we come together, I hope that we can find the warmth of the love of the Father to comfort us a little bit. And now today as we continue in our series, I want to address a popular saying, one that I've used myself quite a few times as well. There's no rest for the wicked. A saying that I think we have an understanding of, um, again, one that I use myself, and it has a few fuzzy references in the Bible, but not a word-for-word translation in the Bible. Um, you know, and as we've talked about through this series on rest, we're going to associate some other terms. We talked about the Sabbath and how that's tied into rest. Last week we talked about how to fret not. So we talked about worry. We talked about anxiety and how to battle that a little bit when it comes to our understanding of rest. And today what we're going to talk about a little bit is the term peace. See, the actual Bible verse in Isaiah says that there is no peace for the wicked. It's recorded, recorded twice in the book of Isaiah, as a matter of fact. And throughout this message, by the end of it, I'm hoping that our understanding of the phrase um, will touch on rest and will dive into that to help us give us a better understanding of what peace means when tied to biblical rest. Now, the familiar no rest for the wicked may have actually had a jump start with John Calvin, who used it in one of his sermons, drawing out the interpreted meaning of the unrepentant sinner um, upon their death would have no rest. Talking, of course, about the eternal slumber. Um, in the 1700s, it started to be used in more everyday contexts. And then in the 1800s, it took on the humorous tone that we know about today. Usually, it is meant for the speaker and how it details how busy life is and how their work never ceases. And then in a tongue-in-cheek kind of way, perhaps making fun of their sinful laziness. But as with everything that kind of gets taken out of context, the humor stays and the biblical principle fades away. And then we're left with what we have today in terms of the away from the sinful aspect in terms of wickedness, but more so onto the workplace understanding, more so into the busyness of our lives. And that's where the emphasis stays. More recently, we have... Titles by Ozzy Osbourne in 1998, titled No Rest for the Wicked, and of course the song from Cage the Elephants, which was in 2008. I thought it was a lot sooner than that, but they have the song by that same title. So again, it's a phrase that we hear often, and perhaps one that we still tend to associate in a humorous way based on our, how our work never ends. And you think, well, if your work never ends, then there must be something wrong with you. You must have done something wrong in order to have this burden being placed upon you. Again, culturally, we mix some truths with societal norms, a way to suppress the word of God. But today I want to dive into that phrase in the context that surrounds it, which is found in Isaiah 48. So if you have your Bibles, please join me there. 
And we're just going to read verses 17 through 22 today. So Isaiah 48, starting in verse 17. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed before me. Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Father, as we go to your word today, I just pray that your truths would be emphasized. Lord, that you would help us to, to improve our own understanding of wickedness, um, how detestable this is to you, and Lord, that we would be able to confess and repent those areas in our lives where we are weak. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so within the passage, we can see how God is referring to people to what he has said and done in the past. Uh, for their ancestors in a lot of ways, and ho- in hopes that they would be able to reflect on that. You know, he, he is speaking to those who are in exile at this time, and he is giving them encouragement to move forward in their faith, to put their hope and their trust in who God is and what he has done. I find it similar to what David often says in the Psalms in, term, in terms of remembering who God is and what he has done. Um, and Isaiah starts out with who God is. Right? You look at the first verse there in verse 17, and he says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. A grouping of three titles, and this should give the Israelites more than enough reason to trust in who God is, just based on these names. And, and you know, I love the Bible for various reasons. Um, you know, we, we treat the Bible as the Word of God, but I love that within the Word of God you have the word of God. You know, the emphasis in the years past has been on the red letters in the Bible to make sure you pay extra close attention to those. And through my seminary days, I went through in my Bible software program, I was going cover to cover. I think I made it to King's Early Prophets. But I was gonna go through and I was gonna highlight all the things where it says, thus says the Lord God, or when God is speaking, I was gonna highlight it purple for royalty. But when you go through the book of Leviticus, you find out the whole thing is purple. You know, and you get tired going through the book of Leviticus, seeing the laws and everything that God is telling the people. But here we have God speaking. You know, and through Isaiah, he's giving the words of God himself. And he says, you know, on top of being the Lord, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, he says he is the Lord your God, the one who teaches to profit or, or to benefit, which is more so for their lives, not for financial purposes. 
He is the one guiding the people on the, on the straight and narrow path through the dangers to safety. He's leading them in the way that they should go, ultimately to himself. And we need to remember, you know, this is a part of Isaiah where these prophecies are now coming in to, to give the people hope. This is where they're going to be returning to the promised land. Remember we talked about last week how the promised land was known as the land of rest, flowing with milk and honey. So there's going to be kind of callbacks and allusions to the Exodus journey through these next chapters of Isaiah where he's going to be relating their journeys, their, their charges to those who are wandering in the desert. Um, all of this was there to put the minds uh, of the people onto God and to who he was and what he was going to do for them, to remember the covenant that he had made with them, that he is their God. And they need to know that. They need to know that it's not just lip service, it's not some casual acknowledgement, but that he is God. They need to know their brokenness as they're coming out of exile. They need to know their brokenness in order to understand that he is their redeemer, that he is the holy one. You know, how often in life do we need to be reminded of who God is? You know, we talked about this in the first message about Sabbath, in terms of how do we treat the Sabbath? Do we treat the Sabbath as holy? Do we understand the holiness of God? Or do we come in with flippant, lukewarm attitudes that just disregard the things that God deems holy? You know, do we understand that as we enter through the doors of a church building that we're coming to worship the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? What a privilege this is. That it is in his presence that the people can find rest, that they can find peace. Now when I look at verse 18, it gets to me in a lot of different ways. You know, God assures them that if they had been obedient, then they would have, this would have prevented their captivity. They would have prevented their destruction of the temple. Uh, they would have profited in ways that would have shown their abundance. Of course, you know, he's talking about people of Israel as a whole. He's talking about the generations. He's talking about their ancestors. But it's also a truth that he is relaying to these people here in this context. Isaiah 59 starts off this way. He says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. You see, God lays out the problem of sin in their life. And he reminds them that their sinfulness and the sinfulness of the people is why they are currently in the exile state. You know, you cannot fully come to the Lord unless you understand your sinfulness. If we were to come on a Sunday and hear the gospel message and think that it's all about me and that I get to go to heaven, I get all these benefits, then you miss the purpose of the gospel message. You miss the purpose of why God is the Redeemer. It's because his people are broken. It's because his people are dead to sin. It is because they've been cursed by sin that God comes to save. God has routinely shown his salvation throughout the Old Testament. And he told the people, before entering the promised land, what would happen? If you turn away from me, this is what's going to happen. And he puts two decisions in front of them. Life and death, blessing and curses. And he implores them, he tells them, choose life because this is what's going to happen if you don't. And then we see throughout the Old Testament record what happens as the judges, as the kings lead the people to, to astray. 
The people intermarry with pagan worshipers and they, they bring in these foreign gods. They build up high places on the hilltops. They make sacrifices to these foreign gods. They failed to listen to the instructions that God had set before them. And because of that, they were judged. If you still have your Bibles open to, to chapter 48, look up into verse four with me. It says, because I know you're obstinate, and your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead brass. Then skip down to verse eight. You have never heard, you have never known. From of old your ear has not been opened, for I knew that surely, you surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. So you see how the Israelites are a stiff-necked, stubborn people, wanting to go their own way, not able to hear the voice of God in their lives. Oftentimes, as I prepare for messages, I'm reminded of how often my life lines up more with the Israelites or the Pharisees. You know, like we talked about last week in the annual meeting, this, this idea of dying to ourselves and our selfishness, understanding that, yeah, as Christians, we have so many wonderful benefits in the Christian life, but the glory is to always be to God. It's not to be kept for ourselves. And as the Lord says, this opening part of verse 18 it's set in a way of disappointment of what could have been and if you have been a teacher or if you're a parent um, perhaps you know the pain of when a student is unteachable to where you can see the way that somebody should go and you watch them go in the opposite direction and you know the hardship that they're going to face you know that they're not able to to listen to wisdom you know what's best for them but they choose to go down a different path. It hurts to watch those types of things unfold of what could have been. And the Lord says that if you had kept my commandments, your peace would have been like a river, your righteousness like the ways of the sea, your descendants as numerous as the sand, and their names would not have been cut off. Now, obviously, this has ties to the covenant uh, in terms of the language that's being used here. And he's not going back on his covenant. But instead what he's saying is, you as a people took steps backward. Because if you didn't sin, if you didn't go into wickedness, then your numbers would have been so much more. You wouldn't have been judged in the way that you are. You, would have, you wouldn't have had these wars and this exile which cut down your numbers. But they were cut off and judged because of their wickedness, because of their idolatry. And that's kind of what's meant there in verse 19 in terms of the covenantal language. But as we go back up into 18, that their peace would have been like a river. Now, I, I brought this up in October after my pastor's retreat in Colorado, uh, just sitting in the mountains next to some rivers and just being at peace, listening to the sounds. I'm reminiscent of the song, It Is Well With My Soul, which opens up with, When peace like a river attendeth my way. Peace like a river comes through obedience to the Lord's commands. You know, when you tie verse 18 together, you can see that understanding. And it's not in a legalistic sense, but rather it's a natural outgrowth from obedience that you would be at peace. As we understand salvation, we understand that Jesus brought peace with us, or for us, with God. However, we're not perfected yet, right? We're not glorified, and sin still causes separation. And we have this, this desire, these, these temptations to want to hide, to go into the dark so that our guilt cannot be seen. 
and it overtakes us to where peace cannot be a part of our lives as sin is there. See, obedience brings about peace and calmness in your heart, even though sea billows roll. You think of that line in the song and you juxtapose that to, this, to the, the waves of righteousness that are here in our passage. When you think of the waves of the sea, it's constant. So when you think of righteousness in the sense, you are constantly doing the will of God. You're obeying his commands. You're doing what is right and you're in right standing with the Father. And so as to, again, not to avoid confusion, righteousness is not you earning your salvation, but it's the result of obedience to the commands of God where you are in right standing with the Father, where your heart is at peace because you're listening to his commands. And you know, even though there might be difficulties and tragedies in your life, the peace of God surpasses all of those things, right? It doesn't mean that chaos and tragedies won't happen just because you follow God's commands, just because you're obedient, but rather you can attain peace even as those things go on. Philippians 4 Seven through nine. It says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You see, the peace of God and rest can happen in the midst of grief, of arguments, of conflict, of chaos. It's a healthy understanding of the sovereignty of God that we can have to understand our position in Christ. See, it's a promise that God is giving to the people of the exile for them to trust in him and to look for the Christ. Later in Isaiah 66, he says this in verse 12. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse and you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knee. As one whom his his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. And you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. You see, we understand and have peace because it comes from God. It is given to us through his son, Jesus. It's not just something that we can look forward to um, when heaven comes, when we die and we stand before the Lord, but it's a lifestyle and mentality that can be ours today as it's intertwined with rest. But as with everything, we tend to have short memories. We face a lack of peace in our lives, whether it's going through conflict, whether it's going through complications and hardships and trials. One of the reasons I think that we face a lack of peace is because we're not resting well with the Father. We're not being obedient to his commands, but rather we're allowing the world to lead us in ways that are unacceptable. We're allowing the world to manipulate our thoughts and our feelings and our responses rather than the word of God. We're not spending time with the Father. If we're not spending time with the Father, the one who brings peace, how can we expect peace? See, the word gives us such wonderfully rich promises for us to reflect on. 
in these last three verses in our passage today, he calls for them to go, to go to the land of their fathers, to go to the promised land. The wording and events, again, are, are similar to the Exodus journey, but it's what they can count on. And when they go, they're not to go defeated with their hang, head hanging down low, like we've been in exile all of these years and oh, we're just lower in number, we're defeated. No, they're supposed to go out and they're supposed to rejoice. When they go out, they're not supposed to be fleeing like, is this too good to be true? Am I really free? Can I just escape and run away? No, they're supposed to walk proudly because of who God is and what he has told them to do. They're to have shouts of joy. Even though they have just come through exile and punishment, they are to rejoice because God is redeeming them. And of all the examples from the Exodus journey, I love how they used Christ and the rock in this one. It's called to open their hearts and minds for the coming Christ. And for us on this side of the cross, we can see the connection and the consistency of Scripture. We can see how Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So we're able to make the connection to the promise of joy given to the people here, and we see it fulfilled in the person of Jesus. We can see God's word being true, and we can put our trust in him in order to follow his word more closely. At least that's the hope, that's the call that we see. Now God's final word in this section, as joyful as it is that they were to shout, he gives a word of warning. For the wicked there is no peace. You see, the wonderful promise that is just summarized in terms of them going back to the promised land is no guarantee that Israel would enjoy the richest blessings of God if she continued to practice the wickedness that led to the exile in the first place. It's a call for them to remember the exile. It's a call for them to understand idolatry and the high places where worship had happened and all of those things and how they are wicked in God's eyes that led to their judgment. And the Israelites needed to know that there would be no peace for those people. Whether that was eternal peace in terms of the eternal separation or just a lack of peace in their lives because of sin. And by way of application for us today, as we consider the promises in these verses, as we consider the promises that we have in the New Testament, God has similarly promised to build his church through the apostles, through the disciples, and to celebrate uh, and worship Jesus for the salvation that we've received. But it's no excuse for Christians to conclude that because our salvation is secure that we can sin with disregard of God's commands. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are no longer under the law but under grace? By no means. See, we too can have wicked mentalities and these complexes that say that we can do whatever we want just because God is faithful to his promises. And for some reason, we don't think that we need to be faithful to the Lord because, well, we don't believe in a works-based salvation, right? So obviously we can do whatever we want because God's the one that saves. I think if you hold that type of attitude and thought process, I would challenge your understanding of salvation and the effect that salvation has in terms of receiving a new heart and the spirit of God in your life. Because Jesus says, by your fruit, they will recognize you. By your love, they will recognize that you are mine. Now, I'm not saying that we won't fall, that we won't sin, that we won't give in to temptation. 
but rather whether or not there is wickedness in our hearts that we're holding on to in forms of idolatry, worshiping other things. As we hold on to those things, we cannot expect to have peace. We will not have rest. You know, and thankfully, I'm not the final judge of who has put their trust in Jesus as their Savior. But as an under-shepherd, I'll try my best to guide us on the path that stands for his truth. Because you know the areas in your life where you are being sinful. You know the wickedness that you're harboring and holding on to. You've experienced the shame, the guilt, and those things will continue to consume you if you do not confess and repent. If you do not go to the Redeemer to seek his forgiveness, but instead, like the Israelites of old, continue to live in your own ways, doing things the way that you want to do them, no matter how wicked they might be, just hiding from the Lord. It's not a healthy approach to faith and life. It's not one that's being led in the way that it should be by the word of God. If we're stuck in those patterns, we need to confess the wickedness in our hearts, confess the sin that so easily entangles, and repent. Not just saying I repent and I'm sorry, but turning from those idols, turning from what we're worshiping and what we're holding above the Father, and turn back to him because he is the way, the truth, and the life. As we turn away from that wickedness, we understand who our Redeemer is, who the Holy One of Israel is, who upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. We need to reflect on that more in our days. Let's pray. Father, as we go to your word today, I just thank you for your truths. I thank you for the peace that you have given us through Jesus. Lord, and as we examine ourselves, as we think uh, upon different sinful attitudes and habits, Lord, I pray for a heart of repentance. I pray that we're able to confess those sins to you, lay them at the feet and receive the forgiveness that you offer. Father, I pray that as you continue to walk with us, that you would give us a desire, a burning passion for your word, for your truth, to understand who you are as God, to understand your holiness, to understand what you require of us, and Lord, that you would give us the strength by your spirit to walk in that path. Help us to be witnesses uh, within our families, within our workplaces, within our communities, Witnesses that display your truth, that bear fruit, that show your love. Lord, help us to stand firmly for your ways. Root out any selfishness. And Lord, may we live for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.